Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. A down week on Wall Street, as the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, said in Jackson Hole that some inflationary pressures are beyond the ability of America's central bank to adequately address. Russia again interrupted gas deliveries to Europe to further stoke discord, prompting prices to skyrocket as Boris Johnson shows his commitment to Ukraine by visiting Kiev to mark the 31st anniversary uh, of the country's independence from the Soviet Union. And President Biden added another $4 billion in aid for Ukraine. Europe focuses on environmental sustainability, putting pressure not only on companies and air carriers, but business jet usage. Uh, I should note that Elon Musk was criticized for a seven-minute flight from one side of San Francisco to another, even though he was apparently not on the airplane and it was simply being repositioned, as is the case with business aircraft. Uh, China remains disconnected from increasingly disconnected from the global commercial aviation system as Beijing's escalation of tensions with Taiwan begins to take an economic toll as countries uh, revisit their strategic trading future uh, with China. This as NASA is finally poised to launch its long delayed return to the moon on Monday morning with the Artemis 1, a 42-day unmanned mission to test the rocket uh, and the uh, spacecraft and systems uh, in lunar orbit uh, far beyond and then back and the keel of the ninth U.S. Navy warship to bear the name, uh, the great name Enterprise was laid at HII's Newport News uh, shipyard yesterday morning as the company works to secure another two-ship multi-year contract on the Ford-class carrier with four of those uh, ships already under construction, uh, delivered or soon to be delivered. Boeing and Leonardo have started delivering MH-139 helicopters. More UH-60s are on order from Sikorsky. And Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall said during a visit to Australia that the country's ghost bat unmanned aircraft being developed by Boeing Australia uh, for the loyal wingman effort could have a role in uh, the U.S. Air Force's next generation air dominance program. Joining us to discuss all of this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tuza of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. Ron and Richard will be first up, and Sash will be joining us later in the program. Guys, welcome back. Uh, wouldn't, wouldn't be Sunday uh, without having you guys on. Thanks so much. Yeah, as always, Vago, great to be here. I was about to say, wouldn't be Sunday without this. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS, Fortress Information Security, sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, ultra intelligence and communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and we're a proud Farnborough International Airshow media partner, uh, where uh, our coverage of Britain's leading airshow was sponsored by Farnborough International and Leonardo, Leonardo DRS. Uh, and check out our two weekly podcast, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, uh, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. Uh, guys, uh, thanks very much again 
for uh, joining us, Ron. Uh, talk to us a little bit about broader market performance and how the group performed within that. It was a it was a rough week on on Wall Street, giving back uh, some gains over the past uh, couple of weeks. Uh, and Powell's uh, address and presentations uh, in Jackson Hole and how they affected the market and the outlook going forward. Right? I mean, inflation seems to be under greater control. Uh, you know, employment figures uh, are generally uh, good, so there's a little bit of economic optimism here. But again, uh, some some clouds and how they affected investors. Yeah, I mean, it was it was uh, a volatile week, right? I mean, if you just kind of look at the market performance, we had some good up days. And then Friday was a pretty big down day after uh, Powell's comments um, at Jackson Hole. Uh, just as a measure of that, you know, last week, if you remember, uh, the VIX index, which is that broad measure of sort of fear and volatility in the market, was below 20 and it closed this week at about 26. So that's a pretty big move and it made most of that move. Uh, right at the end of the week. Uh, so it just give you a sense of what's going on. It's also a, a time of year, uh, no big surprise, a lot of people are out of the office, right? And we're, we're real late summer. We're almost to Labor Day. Um, some kids are back in school, some aren't, but this is sort of that last chance for people to be out of the office, and, and a lot are. So that that's another factor that tends to, to add uh, to the volatility. If you look at the 10-year yield, uh, something we talk about every week, um, it hasn't been above three for a while. It is now. Um, just give you a feel for that. If you go back to the end of July, it was almost at you know, two and a half percent. Now it's up to a little over three percent. If you think about it in, a, in a month, that's a pretty big move. Um, and, and and I think the big takeaway what was driving underlying this this volatility was the, the debate on the street. You know, so for those folks who, who you know don't um, kind of look at Wall Street all the time, the big debate on the street is, you know, is the Fed faking this out? Is the Fed talking you know, a, a tougher story than what really is going to happen? Uh, and I think the street had itself convinced that, you know what, the Fed's going to be probably a little bit easier on things than, um, than what's going to be reality. And, and then for some reason, the remarks on Friday made the street sort of think the other way. Uh, and and the, and the simple reality is, if you look at where real interest rates are, they're they're very negative right now. And you know, as long as real interest rates are very negative, um, a, a lot of things just don't work right. And and that has to um, sort of reverse itself. And uh, as as was said at Jackson Hole, I mean, there's only so much that the the U.S. central bank can do about that. Um, as we all know, in other parts of the world, inflation is really quite strong. Uh, and and just to rewind, just just remember. I mean, a lot of this is just the consequences of, you know, almost thirty-two trillion dollars of stimulus in, in twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty-one. Uh, global central banks buying back eight hundred million dollars of bonds per hour every, every hour of every day during those two years. So that that's something that just takes time to digest. And I think the streets just just figuring that out. When you look at the the performance of uh, the group. Um, it, it's interesting, right? So Boeing ended up ended the week up about one percent, which was pretty good outperformance. The S and P was down about four uh, percent. Northrop uh, was a good uh, indicator of where uh, the, you know the, the big defense names were. It was down about one percent, again outperforming. Um, but Boeing did did better. Raytheon Technologies uh, was uh, down, kind of in line with uh, with the S and P. Uh, and then when you, you you go into some of the smaller cap names. Uh, names like um, you know, Rocket Lab. Rocket Lab was off 8%. And that gives you an indicator of where maybe some of the smaller, small cap volatility was present. Uh, and then some of the, the names that are just kind of really, really strongly identified as, as SPAC names, uh, Astra 
as a space company, small space company, their stock was almost down 25% in the week. So there was a lot of volatility. And my expectation is, and I think this is you know the same with, with the bank, um, you're going to see that volatility for a while, right? Because you're going to see this debate going back and forth. Is the Fed done? Is the Fed not done? Is the Fed done? Is the Fed not done? And that's going to drive a lot of volatility. Uh, and anybody who knows the street, right? I mean, it's all about the story and a change in story. And that would what drives it, right? I mean, their mental model was, this isn't going to be that bad. And then all of a sudden, the mental model changes and then people have a strong reaction to that change. Uh, you know, hey, wait, maybe I haven't been thinking about this the right way. Um, and, and then uh, it, it starts to move the needle. Um, speaking about moving the needle, um, I know this is a very passionate issue uh, on the part of a lot of people about uh, what the president did on debt relief, right? His supporters say, hey, this is a great idea. Uh, and uh, was was necessary, but it doesn't do anything to address the underlying costs, right? And if you subsidize it, then those college education costs that are at an all-time high only become higher, uh, right? So we didn't really do anything to address it. So that's the criticism of the president, but the president is being criticized by his own side for, wait a minute, you didn't absolve all college debt, um, you know, and all sorts of estimates about how much this is going to cost, whether it's 300 billion, uh, you know, some folks look at it as it's going to be a smaller number, others project a far larger number. I don't, I don't want to necessarily get into the merits of it, but the are, are investors asking at all what impact this could have on defense spending? Because that is an issue that came up on the Friday program. Um, no, I mean, nobody's, nobody really asked about that. You know, the, the only thing you kind of saw, maybe this was in the financial press, that uh, it, it could be interpreted as something that could you know, add to inflation. But outside of that, there really wasn't much discussion of it on, on, on Friday. Uh, and, and indeed, a little bit of uh, debate and discussion on that. But I think we can all agree that actually it would have been better if we had figured out something to address the high cost of college education and increasing cost of college education uh, than, than, um, you know, maybe going in a, in a way that, that will only make the matter worse. Anyway, um, Richard, let me bring you into the uh, uh, discussion um, and ask you about decoupling. This is something that we've been talking about a lot on the program. I think you and I both saw the same uh, article uh, in The uh, Economist. Sort of talk to us a little bit more, you know, because this is an evolving story. And every week there is, you know, companies reconsidering what the strategic outlook in China is, uh, countries uh, reconsidering what the strategic outlook obviously in Russia is. People are trying to wean themselves of trade. But even as we've tried to wean ourselves as tr uh, of, of Russia trade, we're still doing a billion dollars in trade across, according to the uh, Associated Press, right? That's down almost 50%. That's half as much as where we were. But, um, you know, we're, we're still buying a lot of stuff like titanium and aluminum and a whole bunch of things from, from the Russians. And indeed, you know, they talked to us a little bit about decoupling uh, and, and China in particular. And Ron, I might ask you uh, to sort of follow up on that a little bit as well. Yeah, it was very interesting. The Economist piece looked at the fact that, well, China is now basically cut off from the world in terms of aviation and indeed has um, implicitly abrogated just about every aviation bilateral with everybody. Given the nature of the pandemic, that's understandable, but how long do you use that excuse and how long does it keep going on? Um, and they're basically two schools of thought. One is that what you're watching is effectively decoupling. That is to say, not only are they kind of interested in a greater level of autarky and self-sufficiency, but they're also kind of sending a message that the market economy is just really not for them. That's that's a minority view. The bigger view is that they're absolutely paranoid about any kind of outbreak of anything uh, disease-wise, be it you know another resurgence of COVID or, of course, monkeypox or whatever else, until the next party Congress when President Xi will be coronated as effectively emperor for life. 
Um, and therefore they're being ultra conservative. After that, things will get a bit more normal. It's really hard to tell. You know, either way, you know, whether it's it's Russia or China, the most likely scenario is that smart decoupling happens. That is to say, yeah, you can't get rid of everything uh, economic and financial and materials, but in terms of technology, in terms of uh, you know particular micro issues like satellites and particularly defense, sadly, almost certainly in the long run in aerospace, first with Russia, then with China, we are decoupling. And that, of course, is not good. But on the other hand, the alternative that they completely go their own way, Soviet Union 2.0, and absolutely no hope for something resembling an integrated world financial and, and on supply chain economy, whatever else, um, that so far is not the likelier scenario. Uh, yeah, I mean, but we've been living, um, you know, almost in a, a, a fantasy paradise of global markets, free trade, unimpeded, um, which uh, autocracies have used to their advantage to strengthen their own balance sheets, uh, with which to then uh, cause all manner of mischief. Uh, right? I mean, and and um, you know, whether it's Russia or China. The underlying systems are so rotten, right? I mean, the Chinese, you know, every single province and town and, you know, sells real estate and, you know, and so there are Ponzi scheme elements of this even within their own systems, which are, right? I mean, that was the Evergrande uh, challenge and, and what it uh, potentially uh, indicated. Ron, I mean, how are, how are folks on the street responding uh, to all this? How are investing, you know, because I mean, there are opportunities to make money everywhere, right? You don't necessarily have to make your money in China or in Russia. Yeah, I think the big question has really been focused more around maybe two two different vectors. One on the technology front, uh, you know, what does this mean for uh, Taiwan Semi and you know the uh, microprocessor fabrication industry, uh, and that drives a question along the other vector, which is global security and, and defense spending. Uh, so there's there has been interestingly enough, you talk about you know, Wall Street and the story. Uh, one of the stories that has been talked about more lately is, you know, if Taiwan were to go the way of Hong Kong, um, what does that mean? Uh, what would the U.S. do? How do we think about uh, defense spending in the Pacific uh, because of that? Uh, and and if if China were to, you know, quote unquote, take back Taiwan, would they stop there, or would they move along the island chains where there's other? Uh, islands with you know large Han populations, and um, you know want to bring them back into the fold. Uh, you know one place that's come up in conversations is Singapore, as an example. So you know the question really, really becomes, uh, I think, from a, an investment thing: you know, A, what does it mean for global security? And B, from uh, a technology investment point of view, um, where are investments going to be made? What's going to happen, and how's it, that's going to go? And and along both those vectors, there's you know investment opportunities. Ron, you know I want to I want to go into um, you know sort of more broadly in, in terms of air travel, right? I mean, so not only do we have a disconnection of China and what that potentially means from a supplier standpoint, right? I note that Max Ten has still not been blessed to go back in service full time uh, by uh, Chinese authorities, uh, right? So I mean, there's still an asterisk that's hovering over that, even if the airplane has gone back in service all all around the world, and it's seen as tied up in U.S. Uh, 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 Chinese uh, trade uh, uh, and security tensions, but you know, Airbus is not that far behind either, right? I mean, so you know, it's at some point they could only buy from Airbus, but I think they're going to be equally disappointed in, in part by European governments and the angle that they're taking. Um, 
Europe is also very focused on environment, environmental sustainability. That's gotten a massive uh, surge, as we've discussed on this program, because of low rivers, unprecedented heat waves, crops being destroyed. I mean, the aftermath of this is going to span uh, a long time, and we're all going to have to pay more for pasta, uh, for example, and, and that's, that's, the, that's the least of it. Um, it's having an impact in terms of um, you know, the pressure on air carriers to become more sustainable and now renewed pressure uh, on business aircraft, right? I mean, a lot of people who could afford it during the pandemic ended up traveling increasingly uh, private. Uh, and the more problems you have with the commercial aviation system, you have people who got a, got a taste of private and have continued to travel private. Where, where are we in environmental and sustainability, right? I mean, ESG investing, as it's called, even though it got poo-pooed uh, and gets poo-pooed sometimes, uh, and the impact it's likely to have on the on on uh, private jet makers, because as we were discussing during the pandemic, the world's third largest aircraft maker was actually Gulfstream, right? Once we got past uh, Airbus and Boeing. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, so far, um, ESG really hasn't had much of an impact on. Uh, private aviation. Um, that doesn't mean that it won't eventually, but uh, it it hasn't yet. Um, and it's I think something that the private avi private aviation industry is is aware of and um, has to I think address. Now the reality is, uh, if you think about hydrogen flight or electric flight or some alternative propulsion system, none of that's ready for prime time, not even close. So if you're going to fly private, you're going to fly. On an airplane that's you know powered by you know, traditional fuels, and uh, generally speaking, you know you you don't think about load factor on a private airplane, right? So right. Um, it's just the nature of the beast. Um, it in it, it you know it's it's it kind of is what it is. Um, and when you, you think more broadly about civil aviation, there's been a more intense focus, um, as you well know. You know, at Farnborough this year, there was a big focus on it. Uh, and sustainability and large civil aviation. But interestingly enough, and I think almost unfairly, um, large civil aviation only accounts for you know, you know, 2% of the world's carbon emissions. And in fact, if you look on a per passenger basis and compare uh, you know, a domestic flight and you compare that to a car on a per person basis, it's, it's far less. Uh, and in fact, a domestic flight is pretty close to a bus. Um, so, I mean, there's there's, you know, some better ways, right? You know, trains do a little bit better than, than, than buses and so on and so forth. But, um, you know, I, I, I digress. I mean, you're on private aviation, it is it is what it is. And, you know, the industry is going to have to kind of get its head around it. And I think, you know, for better or for worse, probably for worse for the industry, there's been a lot of press lately about uh, various individuals, and, you know, you know, movie stars, whoever else, uh, flying around on private flights, uh, short distances sometimes. And, um, that gets a you know a lot of airplay on social media, but have we seen it impact the demand for private aviation? Have we seen it impact both on the demand for aircraft and you know business jet cycles? No, not yet. Um, and maybe at some point it will, and maybe it has to come from some sort of government directive. Now I think you know the French are trying to do that right now. Uh, so so we'll see. Um, but in in that case, and maybe this is me just being um, you know more. I don't know. I believe it when I see it. I mean, you're you're going to be really focusing on a on a moneyed class of individuals that use these things, and they tend to have a little bit of sway with governments. So, so we'll we'll see how it goes. Um, I should I should point out that uh, um, that, you know domestic uh, air travel uh, increasingly does feel like you're traveling by 
bus, uh, as as some would as, as some some would uh, observe. Um, uh, Richard, uh, your your sense on all of this and where we're going? Yeah, you know, I think first of all, it's pretty clear that Europe is in a unique spot where the impact to the environment has been extremely profound this summer, past months. You know, like many of us, I was kind of shocked seeing the Po River completely dried up, a lot of places completely dried up. And of course, the uh, the Alps, the glaciers in the Alps completely gone. This was shocking. And I think it's also, given the impact to agricultural production and on the general feeling of things, you're going to see some fairly, I don't want to say knee jerk, but, uh, you know, <laughs> shoot from the hip responses. And you can't rule out uh, some serious backsplash to private aviation. Uh, that's the most easiest thing to hit. I'm surprised we haven't seen even more given what's going on over there. So it's a major risk. You know, from my standpoint, the most interesting reaction from the private aviation community, I, I think, has a lot of promise, which is to say, as Ron says, is look, there's no roadmap for only a couple percent of emissions. Uh, there's no roadmap for hydrogen, electric, anything like that. We're going to prime the pump for sustainable aviation fuel and really make that our you know, a business because, uh, you know, we're a lot less cost sensitive. We can afford to make those kind of moves, like uh, paying much more for SAFs to help make it happen. That would be a really smart move to say, yes, we know we're, uh, you know, we put out emissions on a disproportionate basis given the small load size of a business jet, but boy, we're paving the way for a future of sustainable aviation and you should pay attention to us in that role. That would be a great message to keep sending. Um, it's uh, it's it's stunning to me uh, the message from some lawmakers, um, you know, unfortunately more so on the Republican side, sort of making the case of Biden blackouts and you know and, and bringing all of that in, as opposed to saying, well, wait a minute, actually, if you're if you're you know, I, I think Joni Ernst was saying this in Iowa, um, sustainable aviation fuel is a boon for states that are strong agricultural states uh, like Iowa and many others, uh, because I think the sad reality is the United States pays quite a lot of money to discard crops. Um, we are remarkably right. I mean, each farm bill is effectively another strong subsidization of the farming industry, the agriculture industry. So why wouldn't you actually employ that which we are wasting to be reprocessed into a sustainable aviation fuel? Yeah, that's right. Except that it, this needs to be approached in a very measured way. We can't just use the traditional ethanol model, you know, with the massive feedstocks going into, you know, I mean, in order to meet all aviation and, and well, all fuel requirements in the world, you need a landmass the size of Brazil. Basically, you got to do something more, well, frankly, high tech, something in test tubes rather than in fields. And that involves a lot more, you know, chemical engineering and whatever else, rather than simply paying for crops. So I, I'm a little wary of uh, lawmakers from agricultural states saying, wow, what an opportunity to dispose of surplus corn. Uh, it's it, it can't be done that way, frankly. I, I'm just saying that it's, it's in terms of a mindset change that actually you will generate more jobs from this than any jobs you're conceivably losing at this point. It was a little bit like the coal discussion. There's a lot more jobs in green energy across the piece than there is in coal mining, uh, for That's example, exactly a lot right. of other sectors of the economy. Right? That's exactly right. And, and indeed, on a, you know, a dollars per energy basis, coal was 
much less efficient than solar and there are more jobs in solar and there are better jobs. And you know, we just have to reconfigure supply chains away from China and towards the West. But that's another issue really in terms of the efficiency of energy production and uh, economic benefits. Solar is vastly superior to coal. Um, we're uh, winding down into uh, rapid fire. Ron, do you want to add anything to the uh, energy uh, discussion, given that you're the engineer on this call and we're not? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the other thing you, you have to consider with um, SAF uh, is you have a lot of infrastructure in place for it already, meaning you, it, you have fuel storage at airports and so on and so forth. And once you start moving to these other alternative you know, power uh, sources, there's a lot of investment that has to be made across you know, multiple levels of the economy, uh, where not that a lot of investment doesn't have to be made in SAF, but it's a lot less than it would be if you're going to try to do hydrogen or something like that, above and beyond the fact that there's, you know, hydrogen or electric right now for large commercial aviation um, doesn't seem like it's going to be a thing for at least another, you know, call it 30 years. Uh, all right, we're going into uh, lightning around now. Uh, Richard, a uh, lot of little bit of program news and tidbits, right? Big week for helicopters, delivery of the MH-139, uh, partnership between Leonardo and, and Boeing for the U.S. Air Force. We've got Blackhawk orders for Sikorsky. Uh, and then the news from Australia regarding uh, loyal wingman Ghost Bat and its possible NGAD role, uh, which Secretary Kendall talked about. You know, walk, walk us through these themes and what do you make of them and anything else that I'm not missing in this roundup? Yeah, some interesting stuff. 40 uh, Blackhawks approved for Australia, and th that should be seen in light of their similar decisions or their other decisions to buy Apaches and also get rid of all of their Airbus Eurocopters, the Tigers and NH-90s, you know, which are looking as uh, the loss of a key market, probably for a generation, to, uh, to Airbus. And this is, of course, uh, matched by other major setbacks in, in Norway and elsewhere. You know, I mean, I think... Europe, or at least the non-Augusta Westland part of it, <laughs> needs to take a, a cold, hard look at their military helicopter strategy, which clearly is, uh, is, has not been particularly fruitful, either on a technical or a market level. Uh, that, I think, is an important thing to watch. And when they, as Europe moved towards the, moves towards the next generation of rotorcraft that they're starting to move now, they want to look very closely at the mistakes made with Tiger and NH-90 for the future of uh, Airbus's military helicopter market standing. Um, in terms of the uh, the ghost bed, that was really interesting. Um, you know, obviously, NGAD, the architecture, not just plane, is extremely elaborate. And the mantra had been, it's a U.S. Air Force program. That would be incredibly expensive. Partners need to be brought in. This, you know, the getaway from joint strike fighter model of no globalization, that needs to be reconsidered a bit. This was a tremendous step forward. We don't know what that wild wingman looks like. Are we looking at some kind of heavy mini fighter surrogate? Or are we looking at swarms of something, well, small and swarmy? Or are we looking at something in the middle like Ghost Bat? Everything needs to be considered. And given the Pacific orientation of NGAD and its enabler in U.S. air strategy in the Western Pacific, it's just completely natural that Australia and Coast be looked at very, very closely. MH-139 was a simple story of de-risking, you know, because, of course, it, it exited the budget for a year. There was talk of, oh, God, yet another Boeing program ulcer, just like all the others. So delivering for and having them accepted by the Air Force was a, a very positive bit of news for Boeing military side. 
and I and I think uh, a relief. And as everybody knows, uh, Leonardo DRS is the U.S. arm of, of Leonardo, the uh, program, the company, uh, obviously teamed uh, on the program. Ron, uh, just bring you in really quickly on uh, NGAD. Anything you want to add in terms of uh, architecture opening it up? I mean, I think the United States has to work with allies and partners on this. Uh, and you know, as CQ Brown, uh, uh, Chief uh, General uh, Brown, Chief of the United States Air Force, has said. Right, you, you've got to be uh, integrated by design. As long as we get the architecture right, we can cross connect SCAF, Tempest, uh, and all of these other programs into something that becomes truly integrated uh, from a, in an organic level. Just sort of your thoughts on uh, NGAD and, and how to do it and how to internationalize it, but actually take some lessons maybe from F-35 as we do it. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's a, it's a, it's a good question. Um, and as we're learning more about NGAD, it, it really does seem like it's a, it's a system um, as opposed to just an aircraft, right? So um, you would hope uh, that you know lessons could be learned, and maybe you can take the best of the best from um, the international markets. I am skeptical of that, however, because we really haven't ever seen that in the past. Um, it always sounds good, uh, but in the end, um, that's not how it plays out. So uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm hopeful that you know they do that because you can get the best system and maybe the most cost-effective system. But sometimes, you know, the politics of um, uh, Buy America uh, outweigh the, the practicality of, um, of not doing so. Uh, but I guess that's where I fall out on it. America's newest aircraft carrier, uh, USS Enterprise, coolest U.S. Navy warship name ever, uh, had her keel truly and fairly laid uh, by Katie Legadecki and Simone Biles. Uh, it's the first all-digital uh, carrier. Uh, designed uh, and going to be built. Uh, and the company's CEO, Chris Kastner, uh, has said that the drive is on for another two-ship uh, multi-year. Um, obviously, the Ford class, it's hitting on all cylinders. The elevators work, the catapults, the arresting gear works, the radar works. Um, so by all accounts, the ship is proving to be successful. Teething pains, obviously, for the first uh, of the class, but it appears that um, we've worked our way through uh, most of the big challenges. So, to give us your sense on on what uh, you know, where we would be on a multi year, the impact, the implications, and and where kind of the program has to go, um, as you know, despite all of its other investment priorities, right? I mean, the company is still very committed to shipbuilding, and so the building of destroyers and submarines, right? One of the largest extensions in the facility in Newport News is to support the Columbia-class uh, ballistic missile submarine. So to give us your sense on multi-year and impact on the company's uh, stock uh, at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, a multi-year is, as you know, helpful for a lot of reasons. Um, when you go from ship to ship and you don't have a multi-year contract, you're, 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 you're taking labor and you have to move it from one thing to another. And you have this, this probability, you know, not probability, possibility uh, the likelihood of just labor volatility. When you have a multi-year, uh, you have the ability to uh, plan your labor better, uh, plan your supply chain better, uh, get uh, more, more value in your raw material buys. So I don't, I don't, you know, there's, I don't think there's any real argument against doing a multi-year other than, you know, the political programmatics of it and, and Washington stuff, but just pure operational from, like I mentioned, from a labor raw material execution point of view, a, a multi-year is the way you want to go, for sure. So um, if if uh, another multi-year were to come through, you know, it, clearly that would be a, a positive for uh, Huntington Ingalls because of all, all the, the aforementioned positives there, there that you'd have. 
um, and in shipbuilding in particular, given the timeframes and everything involved, uh, a multi-year is a huge, huge advantage to have. And I think if you look on the, the, the last multi-year on the CBNs, I don't, I don't think anybody could argue that that wasn't the way to go. Um, so, you know, hopefully uh, that's the way it goes uh, for the next two. Uh, and uh, uh, Richard, uh, you and I and a number of other uh, friends that include Joe Anselmo of uh, Aviation Week uh, got get together last week to belatedly uh, watch uh, the new Top Gun, uh, which was uh, a, a great movie, even if some of the elements of it are grossly implausible, uh, but do underscore uh, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of sort of how the Navy looks at this, right? The hero of the story is not the F-35 under some contrived pretext, but it's the F-18, uh, right? Uh, anyway, uh, sort of any any input on the carrier carrier aviation broadly discussion, uh, because I mean, and as Mike Petters has always said, we've delivered a ship that's as indemnified against, you know, being overgrown for the next five decades, right? We designed this ship for the Navy to do anything with it, but it's up to the Navy to figure out what it wants to put on these ships to make them effective, right? That's not... It's not HRI's department, but I mean, ultimately, you know, sort of, sort of your sense on on some of this. Yeah, uh, that's exactly right. And thanks for asking. I you know, first enjoyed the movie immensely, as I as I know you did and Joe did uh, and and, and uh, others. And um, but I came away not not quite despondent, but a little bit concerned about the future carrier aviation, just because you know that emphasis on Super Hornet, and, and and even in the movie they were a little bit denigrating, just saying. Well, you'll never stand a chance against those fifth generation fighters they have there in the adversary country. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yes, while we deliberately do not use our fifth generation fighters in that context. Right, exactly. And uh, F-35C was clearly absent. And of course, you know, in terms of total Navy F-35C absorption, remove the Marines, of course, you know, you're left with like, what, 20? I mean, talk about not caring. Um, it's obvious that NGAD, the plane, not the system, is going to be monster huge and probably not appropriate. It's also likely the Navy is far behind in terms of next generation aircraft planning and can't just adapt the Naval and get because of that size issue. And not only that, for the first time, they'll be procuring aircraft without any, any budgetary input from the Marines who've gone their own way with the F-35B and of course, indeed, right. their own carriers, the Amphibs. So in the aftermath of that divorce, in the aftermath of their continued uh, path dependence on the super, what happens exactly? You know, is it, is it going to be, um, you know, a drone carrier in the future? These, the, 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 next, the next carriers that, you know, emerge, the next carriers and the current carriers that are deployed in the 2040 timeframe, are they going to be drone carriers? Will there indeed be a naval aviation resurgence, you know, anything that gets them back to the glory days, the F-14 and the A-6, you know, really the sort of kings of the Cold War. No one doubted that carrier aviation would be hugely important in the event of a third world war back in the 70s and 80s and even early 90s. But they appear to be, forgive the term, at sea in terms of their future. And uh, this movie, for all its glory, and how, no matter how great it was and how great it was at depicting with a few impossibilities, carrier aviation, it didn't seem to have an answer for that. And I think everyone's watching and waiting. Uh, I thought it was also fascinating that somehow the Navy wanted to get rid of uh, manned aviation for unmanned aviation, which I thought was the funniest uh, element of the movie, actually. Uh, yeah, and of course, awesome. the, uh, the wonderful phrase, well publicized, uh, you know, the future is coming and you're not in it. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, uh, but, uh, but a couple of very, very, anybody who knows the Navy uh, will like it because there's just so many gems uh, in it. Uh, but I did think that uh, Mav talking about, um, you know, we, we keep telling everybody they're the best and the brightest. That's what we've done. But they've been dropping bombs, you know, from high altitude on people. And it's not the kind of intensity. And we've got to train people differently uh, for a complex mission without giving anything away. Uh, very last 30 seconds, Ron, uh, talk to us about Artemis 1 uh, and what it means. Uh, extraordinary rocket. Most uh, It's the first rocket to American rocket to surpass the Saturn V in power, 42-day mission. A lot riding on this. It's it's a lot like the new space telescope, right? I mean, people were on tender hooks uh, to see how it's going to work, and this program has been much delayed uh, politically and otherwise technologically. Um, what what's it mean? What are you looking for? As uh, all of us are uh, moon babies. Yeah, I mean, you, besides just the coolness of going back to the moon, uh, it's important for uh, the space industry, right? I mean, if you look at what's gone on in commercial space in the last. Uh, last decade, and particularly the last five or six years, we've really seen uh, a, a growing industry um, in no small part because of um, things that SpaceX has done and, and other companies. Uh, but this is, I think, a, 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 how can I say, a big banner carrier for um, commercial space. And then for the contractors involved, it's particularly important. Uh, Boeing is a, a big contractor on, on the, the system itself. And uh, so the success uh, of this has uh, got some implications for uh, Boeing space business, which, uh, as you know, I mean, a lot of the Boeing programs are under a microscope right now. So if, if this one goes well, uh, that's a you know, kudos for them. Uh, so it's it's one it's one we're watching, uh, and uh, it's a, it's an it's an important one, uh, and uh, we hope it goes well. Indeed, we do. Guys, thanks very much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Uh, look forward to having us all together uh, next week. Uh, in the meantime, have a great week. Have a great weekend, a great week, and see you next week. Thanks, Vago. It's uh, great to be here. Yeah, enjoyed it as always, Vago. Thank you. And joining us now is our good friend, Sash uh, Tuza, who unfortunately could not join uh, Richard, Ron, and I at the top of the show. Sash, thanks so very much for joining us. And always a pleasure, Vago, but uh, my, my not loss not being with Ron and Richard as well. Uh, indeed. Looking forward to all being together uh, next week. I'm going to uh, start off with European markets. Uh, Ron talked a little bit about what Jerome Powell uh, had to say. In the UK, you have the leadership election coming down to uh, the final strokes, uh, as it were. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of different market dynamics, but very same, right? Uh, some of the uh, similar issues, uh, Russians playing around with gas, for example, uh, and driving an extraordinary surge, U uh, UK regulators authorizing another price rise uh, in energy. Sort of walk us through what were the main drivers uh, for the market and how the group performed in a European context. Look, everybody had, or almost everybody in Europe had a really bad end of the week. Um, and it was very much at the, absolutely at the end of the week as well. So this, this was the Jackson Hole uh, effect. Um, you know, most stocks ended the week uh, two, three, four percent down. Now, you know, in, in our aerospace and defense universe. And um, that was very much a function of, you know, concern about interest rates, concern about inflation. And the fact that inflation, particularly in Europe, does not seem to be under control. Um, we've talked before about the degree to which the US at times, uh, there's been a perception that, the, you know, the, that you're coming out of the other side of the inflation uh, cycle, the inflation interest rate cycle, although, you know, the news of Jackson Hole suggests that's not the case. 
at least two quarters behind. Interest rates are going to peak, uh, or rather, inflation is going to peak uncomfortably in double digits. And interest rates, uh, most of the central banks, whether they're independent central banks like the UK or the European Central Bank, which clearly represents uh, the majority of countries on continental Europe, they are behind the curve in terms of how to address inflation. There's a broad issue as well with inflation, or sorry, narrow issue with inflation, which is um, gas prices. Europe is massively more dependent on gas for heating and for power generation than uh, the US is. And gas prices, I mean, you know, the, the most interesting example is the UK, where gas prices are up um, uh, year on year about tenfold. Now, they were, you could argue they were artificially uh, depressed or artificially deflated uh, a year ago. There's almost certainly a, a bubble effect now. But when you have that effect and when people are looking at annual gas uh, uh, cost or gas and electric, electricity costs of, you know, 4,000, 4, 5,000 pounds a year, um, then that is, it's a huge inflationary effect. It has a real dampening effect on the economy. You're starting to see small businesses, uh, shut. hospitality uh, businesses are seeing, uh, you know, um, uh, orders, bookings starting to decline as well. And that I think is going to make Q3 and probably Q4 very, very uncomfortable in uh, the European economies. Um, let me uh, take you to the war because European economies and their outlook are intimately tied to that. Um, Russia interrupting gas flows uh, again, right? I mean, it's done to sort of test uh, and uh, show European governments that they should be less supportive of Ukraine, uh, for example, right? I mean, it's always a service-related interruption, uh, which uh, is uh, somewhat less than candid. Uh, Boris Johnson, for whatever criticism is heaped on him from a domestic standpoint, uh, certainly continued to impress in a Ukraine con uh, context when he visited uh, Kiev uh, to show solidarity with the Ukrainian people on their 31st uh, and the 31st anniversary of their independence and the six-month anniversary of the start of the war. Um, walk us through a war update and where you think we're going and what are going to be the second and third order effects of this as we head into the fall. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, look, first of all, why are gas prices high? They're high because, uh, because of the war, because Russia has, was pre-war the dominant supplier of natural gas to uh, Europe, and even where it wasn't supplying gas directly to Europe. I mean, for example, you know, in the UK, we took very, very, you know, a low, low, low single digit percentage uh, of our gas supplies directly from Russia. But the, the knock-on effect, once Germany, which is taking 60% of its gas from Russia, has to find supplies from elsewhere, that pushes the price up from, uh, for everybody. So the, um, the war has had a huge inflationary effect in Europe. It's had a, it's really hit uh, economic growth in Europe. Uh, hence, there won't be any in Q3. And um, it's very hard to see how this is going to unravel, except by the, uh, you know, the, the, the time-honoured ways. Uh, and, you know, I, you know, it takes us back really to the uh, energy crisis of the early 1970s, that if the gas price stays high for long enough, supply comes on stream from sources you didn't expect it. So the US will start to be a major supplier to Europe of liquefied natural gas, because that's what Europe wants to buy. And the US with some tinkering of the um, uh, production and uh, loading mechanisms uh, can provide that. Uh, 
There will clearly be changes to energy demand in Europe over the winter. Um, there are some, I don't know, I think apocalyptic descriptions of you know how, how cold everybody's going to be this winter. It does slightly depend on the weather, and we did not have a cold winter last winter. Um, but, you know, thermostats are going to have to be uh, put, uh, put down. And there are concerns, particularly in Germany, that there may be um, uh, interruptions to power, and particularly interruptions to gas, because um, domestic heating will almost certainly have well, you know, whether for right or wrong reasons, but it's certainly for political reasons, we'll have, we'll have the priority. The interesting issue, therefore, is going to be for the companies in our universe, which of those companies are able to go to their uh, national governments and to their regulators and say, look, we are a special case. We're a special case because we're a defence company. That is beginning to be recognised to be a, a good reason to have preferential supplies, whether it's of uh, gas or titanium or, or whatever else, or um, because these companies are major uh, employers and major producers of exports. Um, you know, if you look at France, the largest single segment of uh, the French economy is aerospace and defence. So it's likely that the French government is going to want to keep that segment going because it produces uh, or generates a huge amount of employment and a huge proportion of GDP. But we, you know, we will see. And I don't think any European governments have yet been clear about what the uh, how they how they're going to make these judgments as we you know go into the fall? Do do you think that this uh, fuels sort of anti NATO anti um, EU sentiments uh, in the bloc um, and There's, and forces governments to weaken their support for Ukraine as well? Governments are always very I mean are, are clearly sensitive about the degree to which um, the Ukraine war is making things worse so far. But I am, you know, crossing fingers and touching wood and everything else. So far, governments actually have held firm. I don't think that European governments, even Boris Johnson in the UK, have made it clear enough that the reason why your, your energy bill is high is because of Vladimir Putin. It's not because governments have failed. It's not because somehow, you know, the regulator hasn't done his, her job. It's not because the energy companies are, um, uh, you know, uh, scamming you. It's because Putin is cutting off supplies and that is affecting absolutely everybody. Um, and, I, and I think European governments are going to have to make it much clearer uh, over the coming months because otherwise there will be a diminution of uh, support for the war. But I mean, you know, NATO, absolutely no signs of that at the moment. You know, NATO is, is pretty popular and it broadly, look across the European countries, um, there is a greater unanimity of you know view about you know what we're where we are what we should be doing you know why why it is that we should all be standing together than i can remember for, for decades frankly certainly since 9 11 and probably longer uh it it, it 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 is indeed right i mean i keep asking the question not because i'm wishing for an outcome but actually i'm hoping uh that there is that uh unity um, that uh, that we've seen so far. Let me shift gears a little bit because we have a lot to cover in a very short amount of time, unfortunately. And let me get your uh, environment, uh, environmental uh, sustainability. I would add governance, but we're more focused on environmental sustainability at this point. Um, we heard from uh, Ron and, and Richard at the top of the program. Europe obviously trying to lead 
um, a historic uh, summer uh, with record heat waves that are interrupting agriculture, interrupting trade. You know, we've been talking about the height, uh, the depth of the Rhine River in terms of its navigability. Um, and there is a lot of pressure and a lot of discussion uh, on fossil fuels, on uh, not just commercial aviation as well, but also business uh, aviation. What's, what's your sense and what's the impact, uh, do you think? Uh, because on many of these things, the world tends to actually follow Europe's lead on them. Broadly, uh, uh, you know, in Europe, ESG is not going away. In fact, ESG becomes a more and more important element of every investor's um, you know, stance uh, in terms of, of how they look at stocks, how they look at investment. And it is right up there at the top of um, boardroom agendas. So every, you know, all the companies we, we talk to um, are acutely aware that they have to be at the, you know, at the forward edge of the ESG debate because otherwise they will lose investors. They will lose, um, uh, well, ultimately, you know, their share prices will, will go down. And um, that is a, I, 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 don't, I don't think any, that's going to change. Where ESG went wrong, in our view, was um, by focusing not just on climate, not just on you know, broader social issues, and indeed the G, the governance bit, but actually on defense and constructing a false view of defense as a, a moral harm. That argument has been, I, I'm pleased to say, absolutely you know, royally smashed by, by the invasion of Ukraine. Very, very hard to argue now that uh, defense is in ESG terms, harmful, and hence that uh, investors should not um, look at defence companies. Uh, in fact, quite the opposite. Uh, there's you know, the argument now that uh, defending uh, freedom, defending democracy, is a, a pretty fundamental right. And if that requires buying military equipment, that's a good thing. That that's you know at the forefront of the debate. And I think that the the this false uh, idea that, that defence was ESG harmful uh, uh, has rightfully been um, con consigned to, to, you know, to, to, to the locker. But what about its uh, commercial aviation impacts? Do you think that those are overstated? No, not so. I think that... I, and I should add business uh, to that as well, right? Business aviation, yeah. a lot of very sharp criticism. Um, I mean, we're pointing to the New York Times article, but there are periodically these uh, stories that pop up about, you know, oh, you know, how wasteful and uh, you know, uh, environmentally irresponsible, all these rich people are who talk about sustainability and then they take their G650 all the way across the, uh, the, the world for vacation. Yeah, yeah, yeah look, I, I, I think commercial aviation has got a problem in its broadest commercial and business aviation and nothing has changed as a consequence of the last six months or so. In fact, if anything, uh, the focus has got bigger. It, it, it's worth stepping back and remembering what the the challenge for commercial aviation is. Commercial aviation is growing. Um, broadly, it grows at a multiple of GDP. It used to grow at about 6% per annum. Even now on the new Boeing and Airbus forecast, it's growing at just under 4% per annum. So um, even with new aircraft, uh, new engines, much, much more efficient systems, um, and the current rate of uh, deliveries, Commercial aviation emissions in total grow every single year, and they, um, uh, you know, probably by two to three percent. That's bad, 
But it's even worse if other major areas of the global economy are cutting their emissions back. So the thing that worries the leaders of, in particular, Airbus, this is why Guillaume Forry and his colleagues at Airbus um, really, you know, were very, very forthright in uh, saying that industry needs to go to net zero by, by 2050. And before that, the maths are that if commercial aviation continues to grow and other sectors of the global economy cut their emissions, by 2050, commercial aviation has gone from being 3% of, of emissions, which is you know, bad, but it, it, that ranks it probably outside the, uh, the top five and possibly even outside the top 10 emitters uh, globally. Commercial aviation is uncomfortably in the top two or three. And at that stage, it's politically untenable for commercial aviation to, you know, to, be, to continue with its license supply, let alone to be allowed to grow. So commercial aviation has got to get better really, really fast. And this is the ESG challenge for commercial, uh, commercial aviation. Um, business aviation, even more so. Business aviation, the emissions per person, per passenger, are between four and ten times what they are for uh, traveling on a, you know, a regular wide body at the same range. And uh, it, it's the thing that worries me about business aviation is that um, it essentially is... It can be portrayed politically as being selfish in a way that you know, a family taking a, um, their, their annual holiday, um, even if they're generating the same amount of emissions, is not. And right. so I think the debate that was occurring in uh, France this week uh, about, and this was focusing particularly on one French businessman and the, you know, the number of miles that he has um, uh, racked up in his biz jet. But, you know, you've, you've had the same thing in uh, the US with the, the focus on Taylor Swift. Um, the you know the challenge there is that business aviation has got to get even better, even faster than commercial aviation, because otherwise um, governments will pick on business aviation because it's seen as having very you know there's very little sympathy politically for uh, people who fly business compared to um, you know the, the the hypothetical family taking their uh, their vacation right. each year or even somebody just flying. Um, you know, to a, to a business convention or whatever. So I think this is a this is a big worry. Um, the, I, it, it's not lost on me that you know France is home to the only business jet company in Europe, one of the the most successful business jet companies, Dassault. Um, I think the fact that French politicians have ignored that and have effectively climbed on the bandwagon um, of uh, criticizing business aviation that should worry every uh, business aviation company because if France, or if Europe decides that business aviation, at the very least, needs to be taxed heavily, and the tax would be uh, on carbon emissions and probably on, on fuel. Um, but in extremis, if European airspace is restricted for business aviation, that makes the whole concept very, very hard indeed, because most business aircraft fly through or over Europe to get from the US to somewhere else. Um, we've got uh, about a minute left, unfortunately. Uh, you mentioned uh, Airbus first, so let me ask you, uh, you know, about uh, uh, reflection and penitence uh, at Airbus. Um, obviously, the order for 60 Blackhawks uh, was a very powerful message. We heard from Richard higher up in the program why this needs uh, there needs to be a reconsideration of strategy uh, at Airbus uh, in the helicopter uh, division. Obviously, you know, there are Tiger ramifications there too. Uh, your sense on that, and then also want to get your 
sense on the ghost bat uh, uh, discussion in the United States and by the US Air Force Secretary and what this means in a mosquito context because the mosquito program that was canceled by the Royal Air Force was the unmanned component to your NGAD, the Tempest program. So address uh, uh, both of those sort of news items, if you would. Okay, Australia, first of all, implications for Airbus. Airbus Helicopters has failed as a military, military helicopter company. That's the really uncomfortable conclusion from not just Australia, but also from the Norwegians effectively grounding and handing back their NH-90 helicopters. And I think there's an element of original sin here. Basically, both the NH-90 program and the Tiger program um, had uh, false assumptions, false uh, starting points, and Airbus did not recognize them in time. Tiger, first of all, the attack helicopter. Tiger was designed too small with too small an engine. The um, MTR-390 engine is a T-800 class engine. It's about one-third, 40% smaller than the equivalent engine in the, um, if you have a small engine, you cannot carry as much payload. Payload includes fuel. You don't have as much range. You don't have as much endurance and you can't do as much when you get there. Tiger therefore was a small helicopter, relatively designed for temperate conditions. It was in retrospect, utterly unsuitable for Australia. Um, but then Airbus compounded it with the second sin, which was really poor product support. They just did not, supports Tiger, they didn't recognize that with a customer like Australia, they actually have to be your highest priority for right. every single item of spares and support, not your second or third after France or Germany. NH90, what was the original thing with NH90? Actually, it was giving every customer what they wanted, rather than saying, as with Blackhawk, you can have it any color you'd like, as long as it is A, black, and B, Blackhawk size and shaped. And each 90 comes in a bizarre, bewildering variety right. of shapes and sizes. You want it with a high cabin because the uh, Netherlands soldiers are on average four centimeters higher than everybody else. Yeah, you can have a high cabin one. You want a different ASW configuration. Yeah, you can have it. Um, so there are more configurations of NH90 than there are NH90 customers. The thing is unsupportable. But again, it comes back to support. Airbus supported it badly. I think NH90, though, was compounded by the fact that responsibility for support was split between Airbus and uh, Leonardo. Um, but ultimately, it's perceived to be an Airbus helicopter, predominantly, and they never understood the issue of support. Airbus has got a capital markets day coming up uh, in three and a half weeks' time. And I think a bit, probably the most important question for Airbus helicopters is going to be, do you think you can become a military helicopter company again? Or are you just going to fiddle around the edges, produce green or gray painted versions of your standard civil helicopters, um, but be a mass market civil helicopter company and don't bother the, the big boys in military? I think the jury is out on whether they can be a military helicopter company again, because I'm not sure their customers will cut them enough slack to give them a, a new program. But, you know, Tiger is dead and it's 90 years near fatally wounded. And, and we've got about 30 seconds on the ghost bat, um, uh, son of mosquito. Go ahead. We would love more operability. The UK would love more uh, interoperability with the US um, and with the Australians. Uh, it's going to be very interesting as to whether the, uh, there can be an agreement on common protocols, in particular for data transfer, uh, which is absolutely at the core of how to make systems and subsystems like this 
uh, operate across multiple platforms. Um, this is almost as fundamental as data links. Uh, you know, I mean, link 11 and link 16 were incredibly important for creating interoperability across previously non-interoperable platforms. Uh, Ghost Batters and Son of Mosquito, whatever Son of Mosquito is going to be, have got to, to re-establish these, um, uh, these core principles um, at a very, very low level so that everybody can, can be involved. If the interoperability is only between the US and the UK, it won't work because uh, the UK wants to export Tempest, the UK wants other partners in Tempest um, and can't accept some, you know, uh, a sort of carve out for, you know, Ghost Bass and Tempest where other, other partners can't get involved. And, and I think that's exactly where uh, the US Air Force eventually wants to take this, right? Get that common architecture right so that uh, whether it's the Tempest, whether it's a SCAF, uh, or whether it's an Australian program can all uh, interconnect yeah. uh, and 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 have those effects of interoperability, even if there's greater diversity in platform. Sash, thanks very much for joining us. Have a great week uh, and look forward to having you back on again next week.